All right, we're going to move over into our study of the Word of God tonight. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to the book of Zechariah, the book of Zechariah, just towards the end of the Old Testament is where we come to. And I've entitled this message this evening, uh, of course, from the uh, vision in chapter 5, the vision of the throat rolls. You're going to see that in just a moment. Uh, but before that, I want to uh, talk about um, just in the previous chapter, the last two verses in chapter 4, and uh, we, are, we are dropping off on a connection from uh, last week, and uh, chapter 4 in verse 13, and he answered me and said, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then said he, These are the two anointed ones, that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now remember, Zechariah is seeing in this vision in chapter 4, he's seeing a candlestick, a menorah, uh, being fed through these pipes up to a bowl that is on the top that is filled with oil that comes from two pipes going to two trees. And uh, then he's, he's given, oh, he's seen what he, he's seen, he's, He's asked the questions in the middle, and the Lord has given the interpretation. The angel gives the interpretation in verse 5 and 6 about the enablement of the Spirit of the Lord. This contraption works all by itself. No man needed, uh, nobody to help it out. And it works automatically, all by gravity and, um, and, and the way it's designed. And uh, it's, it's this uh, overwhelming um, uh, oil that is supplying this lamp and it's, it's, it's lit and it's doing what it's intended to do and then the reminder about the power of the Lord. And then in verse 10, he talks about the fact that we don't despise the day of small things. When small things happen, if God is behind it, there's, there's power. God can use, God delights in using the things that man despises, the humble things, the, the small things, the insignificant things, so that God in the end gets the glory for it. And that's what he's seeing here and what God is doing. And in verse 12, the last few verses, uh, Zechariah is asking what it is he's, he's seeing with these two olive trees. What are these two golden pipes that are emptying in from these two olive trees uh, that he sees standing beside uh, this, uh, this menorah and this lamp? And so there's, there's uh, an explanation that's giving and then the vision ends. Now I just want to make a, a mention here. These are two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. Okay, that's in connection with these olives. The, the literal Hebrew word here is benai or ben, which is where in, in the Hebrew it is, um, it is sons. Okay, it's even in Arabic, uh, ben laden, son of. Okay, it's, it's, it's connected there. So it's basically sons of oil. It's translated in our King James to anointed ones. Sons of all. The, the idea is there are two, these are two um, means that are carrying, two people, two sons who are carrying oil before the Lord or for the Lord. Um, and much like the priest would do as they would carry the oil to, to the lamps. They would carry these. They're like messengers. Um, now there's two views 
uh, conservative views about these, the interpretation of these two olive trees. These two people who are presenting and bringing the oil, uh, and they're represented as trees, olive trees, in this. Um, there, there is one side that says these, this, these speak of two positions, the priest and the king. Both positions in the history of Israel had to be anointed by God and empowered by God to be used. All priests were anointed by God in the temple. All kings were anointed by God in the temple for specific service. That seems to fit to some extent the category and the context of the previous two visions. In vision chapter 3, who do we have standing before the Lord? Who's there serving the Lord, representing the people and Satan uh, um, uh, accusing him? We have the high priest who is Joshua. And then in this vision, who do we have represented as uh, standing before the Lord and the empowerment that has been given and encouraged to go out and do what he needs to do by the power of the Spirit? It would be Zerubbabel who's named in this vision, just like Joshua is named in the previous vision. And he is in line for the throne. He's actually will show up in Jesus' genealogy in the book of Matthew as one of the royal line in the throne who would have that position as what we would see at, at this time. He's not king, he's governor, but he does have the right to rule. But he's not king, but he stands in the place of the king. So you have the religious leader, that would be the priest, that's Joshua, and you have the civic leader or the political leader or the military leader. That would be Zerubbabel who's leading this. So that would be these two positions in that. The second uh, interpretation of these two olive trees is that it would also indicate potentially two uh, the, of those who hold the office of prophet. Um, who were the two prophets during this time who were prophesying alongside uh, with Zerubbabel, who's building the temple, God anointed two prophets to come alongside, and they were the voice of revival and stirring to continue to rebuild the, the temple. The two prophets were Haggai and Zechariah. These two people who overlap in their ministry over a couple months, one an older man, Haggai's older, Zechariah's a younger man, but both of them are used at the same time. They're contemporaries of one another, and they're prophesying to Israel, to Zerubbabel, to Joshua, encouraging them to keep up the good work, keep building the temple, don't give up. And God uses those two prophets as instruments to bring revival in the land of Israel. So that would be another way. If the direction, and let me just show um, these two views. If, if the vision is directed towards the two positions of priest and king, Zerubbabel and Joshua, these are two important positions in the history of Israel. And the anointing of the Spirit to empower them and their roles, the priest to lead the people in religious service, the king to lead the people in political and military service. There is only one person in all of the Old Testament who held both positions as one individual. All of them throughout the history of the Old Testament, you had the line of priest. And you had the line of kings. But only one person in the Old Testament was both priest and 
king. And I'll give you a hint. He predates uh, Aaron and the law. Can anybody name him of who he is? Melchizedek. Melchizedek is the only character in the Old Testament who held both office of king and priest. Now, there is coming one day in the future another individual who will again in the future of Israel hold both offices, one person, and that is the Messiah. He will come and he will be the priest and he will be the king and the, and the power of the Holy Spirit will rest upon him. Actually, Jesus says those words in Nazareth when he's speaking in and he quotes Isaiah, the spirit is come upon me and empowered me to do these things. And he's claiming to be the Messiah. He's claiming to be the king. He's claiming to be that priest who is going to lay down and make that sacrifice uh, for the sins of the people. And uh, so it, it, it could be that if that's the way that this is taken, then one day in the future the, we are seeing that uh, those two individuals, those two offices being fulfilled in Jesus. Now the second um, interpretation of this if the vision is directed towards the office of the prophet then it is alluding to uh, Haggai and Zechariah two people that God has used as instruments they, would, they brought great revival. They stirred the heart of God's people to action and returned to the Lord and confessed their sins. They were used as the ones who would stir the light up for Israel and bring them to the realization of confession of their sins. They were God's instruments, God's witnesses to the nation of Israel at this time to bring about the light of the world in, in, in essence back into the eyes of the nation of Israel. Now, the future implication of those two people would then be seen in the book of Revelation. Some believe that these two anointed ones who are mentioned here foreshadow two other prophets who will one day come. And John picks up with this in Revelation chapter 11. Turn over to Revelation chapter 11 and see what John does with this terminology, possibly this uh, symbolism that he recognized in uh, Zechariah. Revelation chapter 11. And notice what he says in verse 4. These are the two, what? Olive trees. And the two lampstands or candlesticks. Who are standing before the God of the whole earth. It's almost the exact same phrase that Zechariah uses. And if any man will hurt them, fire will proceed out of their mouth and devour the enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he, will, uh, he must in this manner be killed. And the, they were given power to shut heaven as it was rain. And they were given power to turn blood and to smite the earth with plagues. And they shall have finished when they shall have finished their testimony, their witness. So this is talking about two prophets that God is going to send during the tribulation and what is the role of those two prophets in the tribulation? They are to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to bring a revival to the nation of Israel and judgment upon the nations of the world. And they will be able to perform miracles and do certain things that are going to turn everybody's eye to the word of God and to the nation of Israel. And Israel by their testimony is going to be convinced later that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. So the light's going to click on because God's using these two witnesses. 
And so that, those are the two interpretations. Now, my personal opinion is I like both of them. And um, in, in fact, no matter which way you take, whether it's a speaking of the prophet, uh, the priest and the king, Zerubbabel and Joshua, and the empowerment of leading them in revival, or you see this as two prophets who are, who are using the, the Holy Spirit's coming into their life and they're being instruments to bring revival to the nation of Israel, both present. Remember, often these visions have a present application plus a prophetic application as well, implication for the future. Then we would possibly see the connection to Revelation chapter 11 as being the prophet in, in that. Um, neither, neither way destroys the vision and the meaning by which God is intended to give to the nation of Israel. He empowers His servants. And it is through His Spirit that He works through His people, prophet, priest, and king, whom He anoints. And ultimately, in the end, no matter what position, all eyes are to look to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who will fulfill and be the ultimate um, picture of what everything in the temple, everything in the prophets, all looked forward to. They looked forward to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, I say all of that because I know several of you a couple weeks ago or a week or so ago when we came out of that passage of Scripture were, um, were, were interested in those, um, those last two witnesses, what they are, where they are, and how they fit into the prophecy and what's the interpretation of them. And so that's for, um, for some thought. If you want to do some further reading, you want to come down dogmatic on one of the sides or whatever, we can, we can have a further conversation about that. Now, moving on to more serious things, please. Um, when I read the first verse in the King James, my mind automatically went to Lambert's Cafe. Uh, have you ever been into Foley, Alabama or Sykes in Missouri? Okay, I think there's one in Ozarks as well. They are known for their throwed rolls. It claimed, they claimed to bake 520 rolls every day. In the 1970s, the restaurant started throwing their rolls to their customers, and it caught on, pun intended. Hundreds of thousands of rolls have been thrown at this restaurant. In 2015, interesting as I read a little more than I really wanted to, a woman pastor named Troy Tucker, who was 67 years old, was eating at the restaurant. She filed a lawsuit against the restaurant because she was hit in the eye with one of the rolls flying through the air. She claimed that it caused serious injury to her neck, back, head, and detached her retina, causing eye problems. She claimed, she claimed in this lawsuit over $25,000 in medical expenses. This lawsuit is still ongoing but has continued to be rejected and passed on because of the topic of the assumption of risk. Baseball is a good example of this assumption of risk. Most courts have held that baseball teams are not liable for foul balls because the spectators know the possibility of the risk of going to a baseball game. One article I read said, if you go into a restaurant that advertises home of the throwed rolls, then you are assuming that there's a risk you might get whacked in the face with a roll, all right? Now, all of that is funny to me, but it has a very different reading than verse 1. 
Then I turned and lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a flying roll. Well, that's just where my mind went. I'm sorry for that. Um, but I want to move on here. In Zechariah is seeing eight visions in one night. And God has given Zechariah his word through these visions. And each vision has built upon the previous vision. And so now we are down to vision number uh, six in the list of eight visions that Zechariah is going to see. There are two visions in chapter five. Both of them are very small. They're just as confusing as the other ones. We're giving less information about interpretation of these two visions. And then the eighth vision is seen in chapter 8, and or chapter uh, set, uh, 6, that we'll see uh, at a later time. They all repeat the same principles that are found in the first six verses. That's why we spent so much time in the first chapter. And, and even with the first few visions, is because if you can... Figure out what's going on in the first six verses in the introduction and you can get a really good grasp with the first couple of visions and what you're seeing. Then it helps you to interpret and understand the later visions and even the later book that is going to be prophetic in nature as well. God, these are the themes that has come up in the first few verses. God is not finished with the Jew. Israel has sinned. There is judgment for sin. The nations of the world will be accountable for their actions towards how they treat the nation of Israel and how they treat the Messiah. Israel will one day be cleansed and be saved. God will bring salvation to the whole earth, not just the nation of Israel. There is a future kingdom that is coming and a future king who will sit on his throne. The, the coming Messiah will be Savior. He will be David's branch. He will come and rule and reign as king over the whole world. And we need to repent. People, anyone who is going to enter into that kingdom must repent and turn to the Lord. God is working out His plan and the ability... Uh, to be uh, that plan to come in place. He will also use individuals to help out, such as the witnesses and different positions to bring about that plan. Even the small things matter in God's plan. The last part of the message of the previous vision, God is going to supernaturally empower His witnesses without any human means and show forth His glory and bring about the plan of salvation for all the ages. All eyes will turn to the king of kings and rejoice and bow before him. God's plan for Israel has not ended. Now Zechariah sees another vision. In fact, in chapter 5, he will see two visions back to back. And they are not as lengthy as the previous visions. They're much shorter. There's only four verses to the first vision and then a few verses to the last there's actually not, not much interpretation that is given to this vision as compared to the last few visions. Harry Ironside said in his commentary on Zechariah, he says this, it is noticeable as we go on with the series of visions, there is less and less given in the way of interpretation. It is as though the Lord would give enough in regard to the earlier visions to lay a solid foundation for the understanding of the later visions. You say, well, I'm just as confused. Let's read the first four verses. Then I turned and lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a flying roll. And he said unto me, what seest thou? And I said, I see a flying roll, and the length thereof is 20 cubits, and the breadth thereof is 10 cubits. Then, then said he unto me, this is the curse that goes forth 
over the face of the whole earth. For everyone that stealeth shall be cut off as on this side according to it. And everyone that sweareth shall be cut off on as on that side according to it. And I will bring it forth, saith the Lord of hosts. And it shall enter into the house of the thief. And in the house of him that sweareth falsely by my name. And it shall remain in the midst of his house. And shall consume it with the timber thereof. And the stones thereof. And the vision stops. Now some people have connected the next vision together. And have seen this all as one vision. But I believe based on what he does. By lifting the angel talking to him. And him lifting up his eyes in verse 5. That he sees another vision. So you only need four verses for this first vision. And we're going to see what it is we're seeing and what does it mean. And from the start, I want you to know that the vision and the next couple visions are going to be dealing with God's judgment on sin. So as you read through this, just know this is talking about God's judgment on sin. So what are we, what are we seeing here in, in this vision? Well, what we are seeing here, as it says here, we're seeing a flying roll. All other English translations, including the New King James, translates this word as the word scroll. Scroll. The Hebrew word is not the normal word for the word book, as used in some other places naturally throughout the Old Testament. This word that's translated for us in this chapter, roll, in the English, is used in the book of Psalms on a few occasions. It's used twice here in Zechariah. It's used in Ezekiel chapter 2. Turn over to Ezekiel chapter 2. Ezekiel sees some weird things flying through the air as well in some of his visions. And in fact, in Ezekiel chapter 2, he sees a roll like this. And it's translated for us in in, uh, Ezekiel 2 in verse 9. And he says, when I looked, behold, a hand was sent unto me, and lo, a roll of a book was thereon. And it spread it, and he spread it before me, and it was written within and without. And there was written therein lamentations and mourning and woe. So he's seeing a vision in this chapter. And he sees a roll, a scroll, a book. We're even given the word book here to help us understand that what we're seeing. And it's written on the inside and it's written on the outside. And he spreads it out and he tells us what's on it. There's lamentations, there's mournings, and there's woes. So it's a judgment book. A book of judgment that is written. This word also shows up in the book of Jeremiah. Turn over to Jeremiah chapter 36. Jeremiah 36. uh, The word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah in verse 1. Look at verse 2. And the word of the Lord said to Jeremiah, Take thee a roll of a book, and write therein all the words that I've spoken And what is the words going to be? The words are going to be against Israel, against Judah, against all the nations from the day that I spoke. Verse 3, that it may be that the house of Judah will hear all of the evil or calamity or judgment that I'm going to do to them. I've purposed to do to them. This is God's judgment that is coming. Now, interesting, in this story, when, uh, when Jeremiah writes it on this roll, notice what happens in verse 14. 
uh, of this chapter. In verse 14, he takes it. So at the end, he gives it to um, uh, Baruch, the son of Neriah, took the roll in his hand, and he came unto them. And they said unto him, Sit down now, read it in our ears. So Baruch read it in their ears, and it came to pass when they heard all of the words, they were afraid. Then they said, Okay, I'm going to just paraphrase the story. Then they said, why don't you bring it to the king? And so they bring it to the king. And he reads it in front of the king. And notice what, what ended up happening in verse 23. And it came to pass that when Jehudai had read three or four leaves, he cut it with a penknife and cast it into the fire that it was on the hearth until all the roll was consumed in the fire that was in the hearth. He burned it up. He didn't want to hear it anymore. Then verse 27 then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after the king had burned the roll and the words which Baruch wrote at the mouth of Jeremiah saying, take thee again another roll. Right, don't think Lambert's restaurant. I know I just blotched that for y'all. And write it all for former words that were in the first roll which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, has burned. So what is happening? God's word is coming to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is writing on this roll, this scroll, this book, the words of God, and they are words of judgment. So move back over to Zechariah chapter 5. This is the same word that is used here of what Zechariah is seeing. We can all agree that what Zechariah is seeing is he's seeing a scroll rolled out over the over the sky, flying. This scroll is some kind of prophetic word from God concerning the whole earth. If we see it similar to Jeremiah and Ezekiel, then it would be a judgment scroll that is flying through the sky, pronouncing judgment. This is God's divine word that is being pronounced. And in verse 2, as it's flying through the sky, it says here, what do you see? And I said, I see a flying roll, and the length thereof is 20 cubits, and the breadth thereof is 10 cubits. Now, this scroll is flying through the air, unrolling, it seems to be, across the sky. Why is it flying? I mean, what, what, what's the symbol, what's the vision of it flying? In the ancient world, when something is said to be flying or in flight, it meant that it was going fast and it could not be stopped. You couldn't catch it. So it's a UFO, right? An unstoppable flying object. It's, it, it's fast. It has freedom. Nobody can touch it because it's in the sky. You can't get to it. You can't pull it down. And it is, it is unstoppable. Nobody can stop it. All right. So the scroll is out so that it seems to be able to read. Did you notice on the front and the back? That's what it said in verse 3. There is on this side of it and there is on that side of it. There's curse on this side and there's one on this side. Now, um, uh, that, that is, is it front and back or is it two-columned? Don't necessarily know. Some would indicate, based on Ezekiel's interpretation, that there's words on the front and there's words on the back. And you can see it as it's flying across. One commentary stated that it is an enormous size. 10 by 20 cubits is roughly 15 by 30 feet. 15 feet wide 
and 30 feet long. This is an enormous scroll. What I read, the largest scroll that has ever existed um, was uh, connected with the Egyptians and it was one of the... Um, one of the Book of the Dead scrolls type thing like that. And it was 100 feet long, but it was only 8 inches wide. So even though this scroll is much shorter, the 15 feet wide dimension and the 30 feet long dimension is, is just abnormally huge. Um, I've seen the Isaiah scroll in the museum in Israel, the Jerusalem Museum. The Isaiah scroll is about 24 feet long. It's come from the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's a full, um, full scroll of I, the book of Isaiah. And it's about 10 inches wide, and it's, um, it, it rolls out to be 23 uh, feet long. Um, but this scroll would be enormous. All right, the size of a huge room, 15 by 30 feet. Interesting of the measurements of, I've read in several commentators, and you can go back and read it yourself as well. The same measurements finds itself in the Old Testament. 15 cubits, or uh, 10 cubits by 20 cubits, is the size of the porch of Solomon's temple in 1 Kings chapter 6. The steps going up, Solomon built this beautiful temple, or, or porch to the temple. It's also the, the two dimensions of the holy place. You remember the holy of holies was a cube, but the holy place on the outside was 15 feet wide and uh, 30 feet long, uh, uh, 10 by 20 cubits. Also, this is also the dimension of the, of the great bronze altar that Solomon built out in the court of the temple. Interesting, these are also the dimensions of the large golden cherubim that sat in the temple. They were 10 cubits wide and 20 cubits long. In other words, these dimensions find themselves in the temple. Now, the angel says nothing about the meaning of the size other than that it's huge. It's large. So we can't be dogmatic. However, it is interesting that it is in the porch of Solomon that that was where the public reading of God's word would take place in the temple. The indication is that, that these dimensions are holy dimensions. They're connected. They're meant to be connected to the temple in the, in the sense that this that he's seeing in the sky is something that comes from God. Because when God gives a dimension and he repeats it on multiple occasions and it's associated with the temple, then that means it's, it's holy. It's, it's for God's glory. I think that we can deduce the, re the reason it is large is, and, and bigger and bigger in, in this dimension is so that it can be read. You can see it. I, I won't raise your hand, but how many have a bold print Bible? Okay, all right, there's some people that have. How many of you have a bold print on your phone for your text messages? Okay, why do you do that? So that you can see what you're reading, right? In the, in the bigger, and this huge scroll, the indication also is that it has a lot of words on it too. Front and back, it's filled with words. It's, there's no excuse that you can't be able to see it. God wants everyone to know what it says. And that's going to be important. Notice that the, uh, from verse 3, as I said, the scroll is written on both sides. There's a lot of words. It's filled up. When you look at verse 3, we notice that it's, um, it, it's cursed. 
There's a curse on it. The term curse is a strong Hebrew word. If you look down here, it's mentioned twice. There's a curse that goes forth over the whole face of the whole earth. And, and then he mentions two types of sins that are over here. The word curse is used in connection with the Pentateuch for the consequences of the disobedience to God's commandments. It got, when God set the commandments and the Ten Commandments themselves, He tied to it a blessing and a curse. And Joshua, when he took the Jewish people to Mount Ebal, uh, Ebal and uh, there in, uh, in the Holy Land, and you remember he had half of the people on one side of the mountain and half the people on the other side of the mountain, and they screamed back and forth to one another these blessing and curses. And it was all tied to being obedient to God's Word. So when this word curse is associated here with the commandments, some believe that this scroll actually contains the words of the Ten Commandments. And these two are chosen, these two sins are chosen just to highlight the sins, but these are two sins that come out of the actual Ten Commandments that are read. See here on here, he said, the, the ones who steal shall be cut off, and the ones who swear falsely by my name shall be cut off. And that goes again in verse 4. So what this word cut off here means is just basically means to be cleaned out, to be emptied out. I think a modern term that I kind of wrote down when I saw this, drain the swamp. All right? That's what this curse is going to do. It's going to come in and it's going to clean out all the dirty stuff, all the sin, all the filth. In other words, this scroll is promising that it's going to get rid of all of those who steal, all of those who lie, and all of those who take his name in vain. That's why the third commandment is issued here, swearing falsely by my name. That's the third commandment. And the eighth commandment that is mentioned here, thou shalt not steal. He brings these two um, these two sins out. Look in verse 4 what's going to do. I will bring it forth, saith the Lord of hosts. In other words, the scroll is going to be brought and it's going to enter into the house of the thief. It's going to enter into the house of the one who swears falsely by my name and it's going to remain right there in the midst thereof. So this scroll, flying through the air, starts coming in the front door. Then it moves into the living room and stops in front of the coffee table where the television is. It will literally remain in the middle of the house. The word remain here in the Hebrew actually means to spend the night. It's going to spend the night in the home. It means it will stay overnight until it has accomplished what it came to do. Have you ever had a guest come into your home to spend the night with you and you couldn't wait till they left the next day? It's Christmas season coming up. You're going to have some guests over. You know, be, be hospitable. Have them in. Bear with their irritableness and, and, and everything and just be a good host, all right? Well, you, you just think about what it would be like if you went home today and opened your front door and walked into your living room and there stands a 15 by 30 feet scroll in the middle of your living room where you can't watch TV. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do with it? And it's come to spend the night with you. It's not going to leave 
until it accomplishes what it came to do. Notice what it does to the house at the end of the verse. And it shall consume it with the timber thereof and the stones thereof. In other words, what it's going to do is the whole house is going to come crashing down. From the beams to the bricks on the outside, it's going to implode. I'm reminded of the story of Samson. And he stands between those two pillars. One last time he asked the Lord and he, and the whole house comes down. I'm reminded of the story that Jesus told of the foolish man who built his house upon the sand. I'm reminded in the book of Proverbs when it talks about the foolish woman who tears down her house with her words. This scene or this vision ends with the guilty person's home being obliterated. Have you watched on the news this week what's going on in Gaza? Have you watched some of the scenes of what happens in war? These giant apartment complexes. These, these places where people lived. And all it takes is just a few bombs. And they're flattened. I, I watched some video on the phone of Tico when he went into eastern Ukraine and he showed me some video when we were in Germany of one of his trips into eastern Ukraine and he went to an area where there are apartments where the Russian military had come in and basically obliterated entire, in, entire um, blocks of neighborhoods just to the ground, flattened them, devastated them. The devastation is horrible. Can I remind you what sin does to your home? It always destroys. It always has and always will. It doesn't build up. It tears down. So here's the vision. We've seen the vision. What does it mean? Well, the angel doesn't give an interpretation of this vision. He just closes with that verse and moves on to the next vision. Interesting, Zechariah doesn't ask. He did several times in the previous vision. What does this mean? What does this have to do? What's going on? Zechariah doesn't ask. He moves on to the next vision too, which indicates to the fact that I think that Zechariah got it. He didn't need any help. He's seen enough. And he knows exactly what it means. He comes down to here in this fifth verse and he doesn't need any more explanation. All we need to do is put our own thinking cap on. We've gotten to five visions before. Now we're into the sixth vision. If you'll just be reminded of what you're seeing and put the same effort that you put into some of those own visions, now you're beginning to apply your own, uh, not your own interpretation, but using your own mind to interpret the vision that God has already intended that could be plain for you to see and draw your own application. Now, let me, let me just draw some application here tonight. God is the one who has sent His Word. And His Word is recorded to us to prove to us that we are sinners. What is the purpose of the Ten Commandments? The purpose of the Ten Commandments is as we read every one of the commandments of God, it pricks our heart and tells us, you're a sinner. Stealing, lying, taking God's name in vain... 
deceiving, injustice to others, taking what is not yours. This all begins in the nursery with toddlers when they snatch at what they want and they get what they want and they lie to mom and dad and to the teacher and get what they want. It's inerrant to our human nature. And when the Ten Commandments comes across, the law of God, when God's Word opens up and shows us we can read it across the sky, it points right to our need and our heart that we are sinners. And it points to us. It comes down and sits in the middle of our house. We can't get away from it. There it hangs over us. It visits with us. It comes into our most sacred and private place where we think we're safe, where we think God's not watching. We can't hide from it in our homes. Feinberg says this, Sinners cannot shut themselves up in their own houses to guard against the curse and the condemnation. It will enter despite all your efforts of closing your doors. Sin is deeply personal to us and it is deeply personal to God. You see, sin is not something that God just sees as a national thing that hangs out at the temple or is at church and is, you know, and is in the religious place. And you better be careful when you go to church that you put your good church outfit on. When you walk into the living room and in your bedroom and your bathroom and in your garage, sin is there too. And the recognition of God's law upon us comes right into our living rooms and shows us you're a sinner here too. It walks right into our home, into our very houses. Don't be deceived by sin. God cares just as much about your sin, if not more with the people of God, than He does about the sin of America. Than He does with what goes on at the White House. It hurts His heart more what happens inside his own people's house, his own people. And that's the message that God is bringing to the nation of Israel. It's like you, you come in and you, you pretend what's, that all the religiosity that you have is being Jews out here and you're building the temple, but then you go back into your home and you think you can run from God. Guess what? My word's there too. And it shows you that you're guilty and you're a sinner. Israel and the nations of this world collectively and those of us who are individuals, the word of God reveals to us that we are guilty. The law was never intended to save any person. Paul reminds us of that in Romans chapter 3. The law was there to show us that we are sinners in need of a savior. This law also, this word, this scroll that is flying and enters into the homes of those who are guilty, it also shows them of the judgment of God and the penalty, the cost of sin. It watches our action. It sits on our tables. It follows us everywhere we go. It hangs over us like a dark cloud of shame because we know that we've fallen short of God's glory and God's word. And if sin is not dealt with, then that law that hangs over us as a burden, that sin and those sinners will meet an end of destruction under the mighty hand of a consuming fire. This is a strong warning to those who make, to make sure their sins are under the blood. What was the cry out in the first few verses of the book of Zechariah? Return. Repent. 
In chapter 3, we saw God cleansing his people from their sins. In the future, as, as uh, Joshua takes off his priestly garments that are filthy and, and, and God then gives him iniquity, he changes his, his sin and pardons him and puts on a new pair of clothes and he's clean and he's free and, and, and he's, been, uh, he's been cleansed. But this vision sees Israel in their position of sin and disobedience in their living rooms. This vision is reminding Israel that God deals with sin. And sin has made a mess of things and His people have dealt a terrible blow because of it. And then this vision moves on right to the next. If you remember in vision 3, recorded in Zechariah 2 and verse 1, we saw a man that was measuring the city from one side to the other. I didn't know that was a couple visions ago, but you remember a guy with the measuring tape who was measuring out the city of Jerusalem? That was vision three in chapter two. Zechariah saw a city that was built without walls. And God was a, a fire in the midst around the city protecting them. And His glory was in the midst of the city. And He dwelt in the midst of the city with them. And they experienced rest and peace. And many nations ran to this city to give glory to God. That was the picture of the millennial kingdom. It was a picture of a man who was, who was making dimensions because he was seeing God building this city up in peace and safety, and then God moving in and dwelling with His people right in their midst. This is the future for all those who choose to deal with their sin God's way. But this vision seems to correspond with the third. The six and the three. The sixth vision and the third vision correspond with one another. But this vision shows a home who has ignored God's Word has attempt to do religion on their own way, doesn't have the blessing of God, but in fact, day and night hangs the curse of God upon them until finally when God's word has had its full course in that home, it comes crashing down and all of it is destroyed. The future ramification of this prophecy is that one day God's word will hold men accountable. Do you notice in Revelation chapter 19, when Jesus comes back on the white horse as the Messiah King, both prophet, priest, and king, all three, what is coming out of his mouth? Like a sharp sword to bring destruction as he opens his mouth upon a world that has rejected him. Judgment. And it comes by a symbol of a sword. And what is the symbol in the New Testament? The Word of God. And it is by that Word that people stand guilty before God. Without excuse, Paul says in Romans chapter 1. And yet he has sent his Word, God's Word, the Son, to bring life if they will only receive him. As I see this picture in the story, I'm reminded of the power of God's Word in our life and what it's intended to do. Both to show us that we are sinners, but also to show us who can be our Savior, who is our Savior. It reminds us of the destruction that sin causes in the life of every 
person who chooses to ignore the word of God. And this is even an application for believers because God holds his people very much accountable. It, it's first in the house of God with his people that judgment will come. And then I'm also reminded, interesting, that Jesus would give the parable in his words of wisdom to the wise man who builds his house upon the rock and when the rains come, which some have interpreted in that the rains not being trials and persecution, but the rains being the judgment poured out by God. When they are under the blood and they are founded upon the rock, they will not be judged because God's wrath has already passed upon them. But what happens to the foolish man who builds his house upon the sand, which happened to be probably false religion? What is he trusting in? When God's judgment comes and he shows up, his house is crumbled and crushed by the judgment of God because his trust is in himself. So as we see this, it, it, um, I don't have time, uh, but maybe at another time we'll see the next section. In fact, what he's going to see here is he sees a, a woman wrapped up in a barrel, and the barrel, some have indicated a basket, is going to be thrown off to the area of Shinar. And there's an interesting perspective on that, but I think it follows very similar to what this vision is saying. Father, thank you for the time we have tonight, for your word, and the power of your word, the, the judgment. Interesting in, just in my study, as I'm reminded in Revelation chapter 5, there stands a book that no man's able to pick up. Until Jesus Christ picks it up from the throne and rejoicing in heaven because there's only one, one, one person who's worthy. But when he opens that scroll, out comes wrath. Judgments poured out like bowls and trumpets. And um, Lord, I pray that you would help us to remember how seriously you take sin. And how personal it is to you that every copy of the Bible that we have in our home and in our cars and on our phone screams out to us that we're sinners. And we don't need to shun it. We need to go to it and read the truth about who we are and realize the, the grace that has come through Jesus Christ that we have victory over our sin we can find that victory through the power of the Spirit. Thank you that you're not finished with the nation of Israel. And that one day they will see those two witnesses and they will see these, the word of God coming to light and they will be convicted by the wrath that is coming upon them and they will turn to you and receive you and be cleansed. Uh, but Lord, faith only comes by hearing the word of God. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen.